we sacrifice the family. So sometimes if you just carry through on your mission, things aren't going well, it's gonna be worth it in the long run. All right, I'm here with the one and only coach, Al Skates. Coach, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Aaron Wexler, and this is another episode of Within the Game. And I'm here with my old coach, legendary men's volleyball coach for UCLA with 19 NCAA championships in 50 years, making you the most winningest coach in any team sport in the history of the NCAA. You're a legend and an icon and in not just volleyball, but all of coaching. And for me, coach, this is a full circle moment because, uh, you know, you just meant a lot to me um, with my whole career and, and my success now with my business. So, again, I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Yeah. My so pleasure. let's my pleasure. All right. Great. So let's jump right into uh, into the idea of this project, which is all about inspired living. What, do, what does that mean to you? Well, <laughs> you know, during my career, I didn't feel like I was inspired. I just feel like. I had three careers going on at once. I had family. I was a full-time teacher for 35 years while I was coaching and coaching. <laughs> and uh, basically, I just tried to do the best job I could. You know, starting in the morning, it was teaching. And I taught from eight to three. I tried to do a good job with the kids. Taught second through uh, eighth grade. And I, I really loved it. I enjoyed it. And then I got over to UCLA. It was about coaching. And uh, I tried to do the best job I could there. Then when I got home, it was about family. And uh, then when everybody was asleep, I would, I would start on coaching again. And that's when I, the family would go to sleep about 10. I, I, that's when I'd look at the tapes or the video on my TV. Or if you want to go back to the early years, the 16 millimeter film, I'd check the projector, <laughs> splice it into six rotations, look at rotate. So I was just, uh, I had this list of things to do every day. Now, if it's being inspired is an extraordinary effort. Yeah. Okay. I was inspired. I, I was getting four hours sleep a night for six days a week. And if I was lucky, I got eight on, on Sunday night, if, hmm. if time allowed, but, uh, you know, my, my father told me when I was a kid after I told him I wanted a bike and he says, well, you, you got to earn, you can mow the lawn, I'll give you this much. He came out and looked at the job and he says, I don't care what you do. He says, but I want you to do the best job you can at whatever you do. Mm -hmm. You go back and edge the lawn again. This is how we're going to do it. And so I just, I just tried to do a good job at whatever I was doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a work ethic. I had a work ethic. And uh, if I didn't like to do something, I definitely wasn't inspired at that right. particular thing I was doing. But on the other hand, if I enjoyed it, or I, I was working hard at it. 
Okay. Yeah, no, that's great. I love that. And, you know, I remember my recruiting trip with you. Um, I don't know if you remember it. You probably had so many, so many guys, you know, on different trips, but you inspired me that moment because um, I think we were in like, like Kirkoff somewhere and I, it was you and Brian Rofer <laughs> and you were eating burritos from Rubio's oh, and yeah. I was there. And, um, and, and I, and I think I asked you like, Oh, you know, what is your culture all about? And he, you just looked at me and you go, I like to win. And then you went back to your burrito <laughs> and I was like, okay, wow. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> well, you, you know, that's funny. The culture became a real buzzword about the time you came along. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if I had to describe a culture, Mike Seeley said my culture was based on Darwinism, the survival <laughs> of the fittest. That's right. And, uh, he, he may have been right because yeah. the way I structured my practices was there was somebody won the drill, somebody lost the drill. I always kept points. And that made the players work harder. And if the first team was losing to the second team, then somebody from the first team was going down to the second team. And somebody from the second team was coming up. <laughs> And that person may never go back. That right. happened on numerous occasions. Right. I remember the first time when Sinjin Smith was a freshman in 76, he didn't dive for a ball. And I sent him behind the blue curtain where the third and fourth team were practicing with different coaches. I didn't bring him back for two weeks. And he went for every ball as hard as he could the rest of his career. And, but on the other hand, I like to enjoy practices. I mean, I laughed at every practices. I had a good time. I enjoyed practices when I was a player. I enjoyed them when I was a coach. Have some fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and I want to expand on that because those practices, I remember them, you know, they were, they were frustrating for me because I was definitely on the maybe the third or fourth team by, you know, for the majority of my time. But I also remember, you know, you coming over to that blue curtain at the last part of practice and going, Wexler, come on. And so I had to stay ready. You know, um, you know, it's frustrating to, to not be seen for a whole practice. But, you know, I knew in the back of my mind, OK, coach might come over and yell my name. So I got to stay ready, you know, and, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, you know, creating a culture of excellence, because, Whoever's listening to this, you know, I want that I want this to be relatable so that they can take some of this information and, and implement it into their practices or, you know, their life it doesn't even have to be sports. Right. So like creating a culture of excellence and and, you know, that that daily competition. Can you just expand on that and like how how that really shaped the culture there at UCLA? Well, um, first of all, I think. As you know, I wasn't there for the first part of practice right because for those 35 years i was teaching my last class either got over at three o'clock or 310 and our practice started at three mm -hmm. so the coaches ran a circle drill for most of those years and at least once a week the players would be doing 300 sit-ups and 300 push-ups not all at once but um 
<clears throat> I'm just getting over the coronavirus, so I'm my throat's a little weak. Take your time. <clears throat> okay, so I wouldn't get there until 3:45, and then we get the balls out and have a hard practice. So we didn't. The guys were tired. I remember Jeff Nygaard, his spine would be bloody every time I'd come in from doing those 300 sit-ups. He was a little skinny his freshman year, <laughs> but he added a lot of weight and played on three Olympic teams. But um, it was tough. It was not easy to be on the team. Yet players stayed on the team, even when they were not on the first court. And uh, they wanted to be on the first court. Everybody was trying. Sometimes I wouldn't go behind the blue curtain to get a player. I just asked the coach to send me an outside hitter because he knew who was playing well that day. Sure. <clears throat> or send me a libero. Sure. And uh, that worked. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'd send somebody down to him. And if that player didn't perform well, I'd kick him out of practice, which rarely happened, like once or twice. So, yeah. And and speaking of uh, assistant <laughs> coaches, you know, the next segment I have is on leadership. You know, obviously you had, you know, the maybe the best uh, program in, you know, in NCAA history in really any team sport. Um, but a lot of that success most likely came from your assistant coaches. Right. I mean, uh, Brian Rofer, Mike Seeley, John Spra. Jeff Nygaard, those are some names that I remember. Um, can you talk about your assistants and how how important having a really good assistant coaching staff is? Well, I always surrounded myself with the, the best people. Right. When I started coaching, I coached by myself. I only had about eight players, and it was easy to handle eight players by myself. Plus, I wasn't making any money. I wanted to be an amateur. So I could play in the Olympics. If you made money coaching, you're a professional. So I, I finally found uh, enough players where I could use another coach. I asked one of my teammates, Rudy Suara, who was playing on the U.S. team with me, to be in a coach, assist me. He was a full-time teacher like myself. And... Uh, I was making a little money, but he was making less than me. See, I made more coaching football at a Catholic school when I was a senior at UCLA. I made $1,000 for a few months' work in the fall than I did at UCLA. I won my first championship in 65. It was called the USA Volleyball Collegiate Championship. I made $400. That was my third year of coaching. Yeah, $400. I got a $200 raise. So <laughs> that explains why I taught for 35 years. Sure, sure. Because I was only a 20% employee. See, the NCAs didn't start until 1970. So we won those 19 championships between 1970 and 2006. And I always had great coaches. Always. I tried to find the best ones. One of my best coaches was Denny Klein. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he was amazing. And I cut him his freshman year, but he wouldn't go away. He came back and kept stats. And when he finished, 
he just was an amazing coach. And I always tried to get the best ones. I mean, I recruited coaches who weren't even coaches. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I recruited a great coach, J.T. Wenger. Yeah, J.T. He was a commodities broker back in Chicago. I called him up when Mike Seeley left to go coach the women at Hawaii in the middle of the season. I, I, I got on the line right away, called J.T. because I knew he'd be a great coach. Yeah. And uh, he came out. Yeah. I, and John Spira, he was going to medical school and he wanted to go. So he was working down at the med center. And he'd come by and volunteer a little. But when I got the head coaching job at the World University Games in Sicily, I said, John, you want to be my assistant coach? He wasn't even my assistant coach at UCLA at the time. That's how he got started. I took him to Mallorca in uh, 99 again as an assistant coach. And, and coach, what makes a good assistant coach? This is for any head coaches out there who might be listening to this. Well, for me, I always wanted a coach who could coach everything. I like to be coaching up the first six mainly, although sure. I'd coach everybody on my court. <clears throat> but I like to, my first assistant to be able to coach the second team in all aspects the setters, liberos, the outside hitters, the middle. Then I, I only brought in a specialist coach one time to do one specific thing. That was a volunteer, and that was Walt Kerr. He was really good at jump serving. Mm -hmm. And that was a big part of why we won the 2006 championship. I mean, he had two of his kids, or maybe three of them on the team at the time. So mm -hmm. he was motivated and we were serving real well by the time we beat Penn State at Penn State three straight. Started out 12 and 12. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, had to win eight on the road. But I've always looked for the best possible people. You know, Karch Karai was an assistant coach for me in uh, 83 when we won an NCAA championship. He, they called him, uh, he was a graduate assistant coach. We could give them a, I think we could give them a full ride if they hadn't graduated yet and they became an assistant coach. So I had some great players that were coaches too. So that was his first championship coaching mm. right there in 83. But anyway, I always tried to find players who I thought would be good coach and get them started. And sure. uh, sometimes I had a kid, boy named Toshi Toyota coach on my first NCAA championship team the first year it was a championship 1970 somehow the Daily Bruin put out a notice that I was having open tryouts in the men's gym this was uh, not fall of 1968 I didn't even know this notice went out I didn't authorize it I walked into the gym for practice there were a hundred guys in the gym and then I found out what happened and, and uh, my assistant Rudy swore and I had to clear the gym so we could do something. I mean, we had, <laughs> we had matches to get ready for. So I saw this five, seven, looked like a 
Japanese or Korean kid. And I says, what do you do? He says, I'm a setter. And I gave him a ball. I said, okay, jump set against the wall. And he started jump setting against the wall. He looked pretty good. And I went around. I got back to him in an hour. He was still jump setting against the wall. <laughs> I said, have you stopped yet? Said, no. I says, okay, you're on the team. <laughs> and he, he was amazing. We set up a whole new offense uh, based on very quick setting. He was captain of his team in Japan, Toshi Toyota. May he rest in peace. He just mm. passed. But he... He set the ball so fast. I left-handed Kirk Kilgore running quick sets. And he would, I'd, I'd have the team pass the ball left side to Toshi. And Kirk would go up left-handed on the right side. And we'd send him these fast 31s. He, he didn't see a block all season on that. <laughs> and that was all Toshi. So in 70, I had him train the setters. <laughs> We won the championship pretty easy. I think hmm. we beat uh, Long Beach in the finals. But yeah, if I see somebody who can be a coach, I want them on my program. I let some go away because I'd have to remove a coach. Hmm. You know, the NCAA has rules about how many coaches you can have. And uh, so I let some good ones go when there was no room for it. <coughs> but uh, you know, the key is, if you want to win an NCAA championship, you got to have talent. And since men only get four and a half grant and aids, you can only spend a full ride for one blue chipper. So you have to recruit players with potential who everybody's not after yet, but you see something in him and he's going to develop later. Mm -hmm. So you got to get one or two of those guys. Yeah, sure. And they they got to hate to lose, and they want to work hard, you know. That's a great combination. So it starts with the talent of the players. But second is the talent of the coaching staff. And, uh, you know, that, that can change over years. You could have a guy that's working hard and valuable, but maybe over many years, He's not the same guy. <clears throat> and, you know, you have to make a change at that point. That's very difficult to do. Sure. That's, but, and then the third thing is you got to have a practice environment. This is on the men's side. I'm not sure the women could do this. Where everybody has to compete hard the whole practice. Now, at the level we're at, we're not isolating skills everything's game-like i mean we're not hitting at a, off a stand at a player i mean that is the most ridiculous thing you can do that only makes that player good at digging balls hit off a stand but if somebody can't pass at all then you give them a coach and you go one-on-one -on -one teaching you pass you don't do this with all the players because it's just ridiculous i mean at a lower level you yeah, you have to teach them the skills differently. I'm talking about NCAA ball here. Sure. So the third thing, getting back to it, you have to create a practice environment where there's winners and losers. You keep points on every drill. And that keeps the players competing hard. 
And they know if they're not competing hard, there's going to be changes. Somebody else is going to take their spot. So it's hard in the beginning because when I started, I had to practice. My coach had to practice because we didn't have enough players. I was recruiting football players, basketball players, any athlete I could find, teaching them how to play. And uh, when I started, there was one gym. We only had two hours practice a week on Wednesday nights after freshman basketball. When Polly was built in 65, and after I, I brought in the gold medal Japanese women and the gold, uh, silver medal Japanese men, and USC to play a triple header and put 5,000 people in the stands. There was no NCAA volleyball. When our athletic director, J.D. Morgan, saw 5,000 paying customers, he said, Al, and he was there that night. I've never seen a volleyball match. But I can tell you right now, it's going to be an NCAA sport. I'm going to make it an NCAA sport. And he did. He met. He did. So the third thing, competitive practices. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how many, how much else you need. No, that's great. That's great. Um, I actually wanted to mention, you know, you actually gave me my first job at uh, coaching when I was a player, when I was a freshman. Uh, you were like, hey, you know, Aaron, do you want to coach the camps in the summer? Yeah. And that really, really helped me, you know, because obviously, you know, a little money was great, but I fell in love with coaching. You know, and so I would recommend and I'm, I'm asking you if you would recommend any head coaches out there, men or women, to, to create that culture of uh, camps, <laughs> right, in the summer, right? It's not just a moneymaker, but it helps develop coaches at a oh, young age, yeah. right? How, how many camps were we doing when you work in camps? Yeah. Oh, man, a lot. I, I mean, I, maybe it was it was a, a little overwhelming, actually. It was like, I, you know, it was a lot. How many states did you go to? Uh, no, I didn't travel for camps. I just did the, the camps at Poly Pavilion oh, in the summer. The poly, we were just yeah, the Poly then. The Poly camps, yeah. Oh, but yeah. That, okay. but, you know, I was 18. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. You know, um, I was a freshman. But that really helped me kind of like open my eyes to like sharing the game, right? Paying paying the game forward, oh, you know? Yeah. And that really helped me. So, um, you know, anyone listening out there who's a head coach or assistant coach, you know, you know, I would say, and, and coach, you know, feel free to jump in on this, but you know, those camps are important. They're important to develop uh, coaches from players. Right. You know that before I just did camps in Pauly, I did camps in, in New York. I did camps in Ohio, all over, huh? Texas, Mm. uh, New Mexico, um, as well as clinics all over the United States before I did clam- camps. Hmm. One of my 12 campers in uh, Buffalo, New York, was named Greg Harrisomovich. Okay. 12 years old. He was a baseball player. Came out, played at Northridge, and became my assistant coach. First time he ever played volleyball was at Buffalo, New York. Hmm. I used to do camps in Texas where we had no boys show up for camp. We'd have 360 girls. (laughs) And then I'd get 10 boys and then 20 boys and then 30 boys. By the time 
the coach took those camps away from me in Texas and ran her own instead of getting doing three sessions with 360. I think she had one with 50. But anyway, we did other camps in Texas. We lost that site and went around and did some other camps. We had boys coming out to play volleyball. <laughs> so we grew the sport. They'd see my boys playing, my my men playing. And uh, I guess they'd go home and tell their brothers about it because next yeah. year we'd have we'd have boys showing up. Wherever That's cool. Playing. That's cool. <clears throat> so it was called co-ed camps, but in California, we used to run camps at uh, UCSD, and we'd have 36 outdoor courts mm -hmm. on the grass, and we'd have half boys and girls, but only in California. The rest of the place places, we had to grow the sports for the boys. Sure, sure. And uh, later, when Title IX came in, in 72, and the girls got 12-4 full rides, and they dropped us to four and a half, girls were playing volleyball all over. I mean, mm -hmm. and I'm glad to see how well they're doing now. Yeah, no, actually that's a great transition to, I want to, I want to go uh, back to what you were talking about coaching Karch because Karch mm -hmm. just won a gold medal as the head coach of the women's national team in the Olympics. Yeah. And I had him on here and, and Karch is, you know, Karch is amazing. Um, could you just speak to Karch and who he was as a player and now and a person and now as a, you know a gold medal winning coach? Well, I gotta tell you, Danny Klein, Karch Karai, Sinjin Smith were some of the hardest workers I ever had in practice. Um, I think Storman Mike Norman was a pretty good hard worker too. But uh, these guys, Karch went 100% every day, every day. And then Rick Neuheisel, who was our football coach, I was talking to Rick one time. We were both broadcasters at the same time for the Pac-12 network after we both retired from coaching. And <laughs> he was telling me when he was a student that the volleyball team would play a game called quarters with the football team, something about flipping a quarter and a beer. And if you didn't do it, you had to drink the beer. Sure. And uh, he said, Karch was the best he ever saw at the game. <laughs> I didn't even know he was doing this game. Whatever. He might have been doing it all night. But when he came to practice, he, he practiced harder. Well, him and Sinjin is freshman. When they did the circle drill, they would lap the rest of the players, they would compete against each other. I told Sinjin he had to partner up with Karch because he was going to be a starting setter. We ran a 6-2. Mm -hmm. So he got to hit in the front row and he sat in the back. And I told Sinjin, I says, we can win a championship if you bring this kid along. I, I never saw him play. I said, I just recruited him at a, over a hamburger at Denny's in Calabasas was probably an NCA violation. I'm not sure, but he's coming, him and his dad, for for a hamburger at, at Danny's. But I heard he's great, so you're going to partner up with him during the circle drill, during everything. And uh, I'd come in late on that circle drill, and then be sprinting past some of the other guys like Steve Sammons, became an Olympian, and uh, trying to get it done. And 
Karch tried to have a perfect practice. Mm-hmm. Never, mm-hmm. never had one, to my knowledge. No, he never had one. We were vocal in those days during practice. Coach, what is a perfect practice, if you don't mind expanding on that? <laughs> well, for Karch, it was, I never had a perfect practice. I've had a lot of practices I enjoyed and uh, where the players worked hard and I've had a good time. And, uh, but for him, it was not making a mistake. Like sure. Digging every ball, making every set perfect. It's an impossible thing to do. Right. Right. That's what he liked to try to do. I mean, I didn't ask him about it, but I'm sure that's what he was doing. And uh, he would yell. We'd have players yelling at each other in practice on their own team and across the net. I loved it. Yeah. It was. And all these players, Dave Saunders, Steve Sounds, Doug Partee, all these guys that, that played together during this era, when they got to the Olympic team, they brought this energy and competitive. And we had guys from SC in the same way. That's why we won the gold in 84 and 88, because these guys were so damn competitive. And we had a great coach, Doug Beale, of course, who really, really did it first in 84. Then Marv Dunphy got it. He was smart enough not to change anything. He had all the same players. Mm -hmm. They ran all Doug's stuff, and we won another gold medal. And a lot of guys would come in and say, well, we're going to do it this way. Hey, it's not broke. Don't fix it, you know? Right, right. But Karch, you know, he he just he was just so focused. Yeah. The players used to call him the machine. I don't know if they call him that to his face or not, but a <laughs> few of them have told me he was the machine. So I, I want to jump in. I asked Karch and I ask everybody that comes on my uh, my podcast here about the flow. And I want to ask you about that. And and I'll tell you what he said. You know, I um, you know, and we can define the flow because it could be something unattainable. Right. But I remember one practice myself, one practice out of my whole career playing for you where I was in the flow. I was just like, I couldn't miss, you know, um, and it felt so good, but that was only one practice. And I asked Karch about it and I, and I was like, Hey, you know, have you, have you been in the flow? You know, can you, can you practice being in the flow? And he told me, he's like, well, I've been in the flow maybe five or six times my whole career, maybe. Um, but he said he didn't focus on finding the flow. He just made adjustments, which I, I feel like you did for your whole career. You, like even game time coaching, you were just always looking at the other side of the net, making adjustments, making adjustments. Um, so I believe that's kind of like the main part of champion mindset is making adjustments. But I would like to ask you about the flow. Did you, well, first of all, do you think the flow is something attainable? Um, and did you ever find yourself in the flow as a, as a coach? I found myself, I, I call it the zone. Yeah, the zone. Slow motion zone. Sure. Happened to me three times in my career, two times as a player and once as a coach. I'll start with the first time as a player. In the beginning, we... When I played for UCLA, volleyball for UCLA, we didn't have a league. We played in tournaments at YMCA's. Mm-hmm. And these tournaments would start at nine, no, eight in the morning. And if you were in the finals, sometimes you'd be in the gym till two o'clock. 
everybody else would go home. They'd lose. It was double elimination. Sure. You'd play in gyms with two courts with a bunch of teens. First time it happened to me, I was at the Long Beach YMCA. And I was playing for UCLA against a guy I coached at Vets Park in Culver City named Tom Ryan. May he rest in peace. Tom was the leading basketball rebounder in the nation for Loyola University. He was leading the nation in rebounds. I may have been playing for the Hollywood Y, I think. I think it was the Hollywood Y. Anyway, I'd go up to Spike and I'd see Tom. Tom was a tall man. And uh, I don't know how tall, but I could see his hands above the net. I could see his fingers above the net. And I'd go up to hit, and I'd pick out a finger and hit the ball off. And I'd hit it out, out of bounds. Or if there was a hole in the block, I could see that hole, and I'd go up and I'd throw it in the hole. But it was all happening in slow motion. And my vision was perfect. I, I could just hit it with perfect control wherever I wanted to. The next time that happened was in the world, uh, world championships in what was then known as Czechoslovakia. I was playing against the Chinese team. <clears throat> I was a middle blocker. And basically the same thing happened. Now, I mean, I've, as far as calling the right plays and telling our team that they were going to, on a good pass, they were going to set their left side hitter and he was going to hit it cross court and the middle would make the move. I mean, I did that stuff all the time. And that that's not the zone. But the zone in the 1993 championships, Northridge versus UCLA, I knew where the setter was going to set the ball on Northridge's team before he said it and I would call out the set so my middle blocker could get a step and I would just call out go quick five red and I knew where he was going to set now I'd studied the tape a lot I don't know how I knew I don't know but I knew so you could say that was a coaching zone. But as far as knowing what the other players were going to do and the other coach was going to call, I knew that because I played against these coaches for so long. I knew what lineup they were going to come out with, how if they were going to flip their lineup or not, so I could get the matchups. I knew that every time they lost a game in game two, that the match would be flipped because I always picked up the score sheet whenever I left the other gym and the coach didn't get a copy. I'd pick up his too because he did. It was just going in the trash can. So when I left the floor and then I'd go back and I reconstruct the match off the score sheet. I mean, I had video too. And uh, so I, I knew what all the coaches were going to do. Sure. You knew that if you played Marv Dumphy's team in January, 
Nothing was going to change. NCAA finals, it was all going to be the same. Why? Because he got so good at what he was doing, he just didn't change it. His teams are so well coached. There was no point in changing it. They weren't going to get any better. And particularly if he had a returning team. I don't know. I do remember that. I don't know if you could call that being in the zone or just experience or flow, as you call it. Yeah. <laughs> just being experienced. Uh, yeah. And knowing what the other people were going to do. And after I saw a player enough, I mean, in 74, I knew the Santa Barbara players so well. It was unbelievable. <laughs> they were the best team. I sent my old coach, Rudy Swore, up there. Art Galliant called me, an administrator from uh, UCSB in charge of the athletic department, see if I wanted a full-time coaching job. He knew I was teaching full-time, and he wanted me to come to Santa Barbara and just be a full-time coach. I was 1970. After our 1970 season, I, I told Rudy, listen, you're not making any money, but I'll get you a full-time men's job. There were no women's jobs. There was no women's volleyball. There was club women's volleyball. Heck, there wasn't any, hardly any men's volleyball at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was growing, but slowly. So yeah. anyway, Rudy took the job up there. We played in the 74 NCAA championships in Santa Barbara. And I put that in my book, what the Santa Barbara players were going to do. And that's another reason I didn't get much sleep. I had to stay up and write the book between 10 and 2 in the morning if I wasn't going over video. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, I kind of forget what you asked me. Yeah, no problem. I Just to finish up the whole idea of the flow, you know, nowadays, uh, coach in sports, not just volleyball, but there's a, there's a, big, uh, there's a big school of thought about mindfulness training. Um, you know, meditation, visualization, you know, does that stuff have any merit, you know, in, in your mind? And do you think? Oh, that, yeah. Yeah. I, I could go to bed at night as a player and think about something I wanted to do in practice or in the match. Say it was a Friday night against certain players. The move, I was a middle blocker. I was all about making the move to intercept mm -hmm. the block. Right. And, and how I was going to do it. And I could come out the next day and do it. Yeah. I didn't need to practice. I st I'm, I'm playing golf now. I'm actually a terrible golfer. <laughs> I had a year of chemo and my shoulders got blown out. And so in 2018, I could still hit a ball 240, you know, my best shot off the tee, which is pretty good for an old geezer. Very good. Yeah. And then after the chemo. I can only hit it 160. So now I have to learn technique. Before I was just using the strength I had remaining in my body over the top, terrible swing. So now I have to think about how to hit it like you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't have time to practice. I walk the course five days a week when I don't have the virus. <laughs> and uh, I'll be getting back to that. But I can I can just think about something and then get a little better at it. Yeah. So, 
that visualization is such a skill and sports help with that so much, but I just feel like it's so relatable no matter what you're doing in life, you know, just to be able to, you know, think about what you want, like the desired outcome, like, like you were talking about the moves that you were making, like to see it in your mind. I just, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in it. You know, when I went back and volunteered for, uh, for Mike Seeley 2011 and we won the championship that year, um, you know, I was, we were doing a lot of visualization with the team and uh, I think it really helps. So anyone listening to this, you know, just, just make sure that you implement some sort of visualization. It doesn't have to be like a, a, a meditation or a, a long drawn out thing, but like training the players' minds to think about what they, you know, with the desired outcome first. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and I, when I was coaching, I was the head coach of the U S uh, Pan American and zone team in 1971. And uh, we we're practicing at Santa Monica college USA Volleyball couldn't get a site, so I made Bert DeGroot, who was an administrator at Santa Monica College and a, very, a great coach at Santa Monica College, my assistant, and so we could use their balls and their floor. I couldn't get in at the men's gym at one of the charges. So anyway, I got some cameras and uh, video cameras. And we were, if we were serving or jump serving, whatever we we're doing, they could just come over and look at the cameras. Mm -hmm. They're doing wrong. I think John Sparad does that at practice every day now. And uh, I thought that that helped them. I mean, they actually sure. got to see it and then try it again and see it yeah. and again. I didn't have much of a budget to do that at UCLA at the time, so we didn't we didn't do it. Yeah. But I did it with the national team. We didn't have a budget either. We had less of a budget. I don't know how I got those cameras. I, oh, probably through Santa Monica College. Yeah, that's right. Coach, yeah. uh, I'd like to transition and talk about Coach Wooden. You know, a big oh, yeah. part of this project, you know, a big part of the inspiration that I had to create my own pyramid of inspired living, which um, I'm going to be publishing soon, um, came from his his pyramid of success, you know. And I know you, you know, uh, you go back with coach Wooden, um, you know, you, you, your office was next to his for a long time. Could you talk about coach Wooden and his impact on you uh, personally and obviously UCLA? Well, yes, I, I didn't know coach Wooden until he retired because we both practiced at the same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. And I wasn't there during the day, but after he retired, when we weren't practicing, he was there. He'd come into my office and I'd go into his. But here, here as a young man, he, he influenced me. He had a, a basketball book called Modern Basketball. And I read that book and about 26 pages were on coaching. And I learned so much from that book. Where I really learned how to coach, though, was at Vets Park in Cobra City, where I'd actually coach 10 and under, 12 and under, 14 and under, and 16 year and under, in football, hardball, uh, track and field, various sports. That's where I learned to coach myself. But then I read his book, <clears throat> and it was really good stuff. Mm -hmm. And I still have it underlined in the other room. I showed it to him. 
after we got to know each other. And uh, the other thing Coach Wooden did that I didn't know about until we were on a committee in, uh, for Vaveline Oil. And it was good to get on this committee because they would promote your sport if you got on their sports committee. And for example, I did a video using Toshi Toyota and uh, some other great players I had. And they made 10,000 copies of the video and sent them to high school for boys volleyball coaches so they could look at this video and how to do the drills correctly. And I had some great women players off the um, 84 Olympic team on that program too, in the video. But anyway, I'm sitting with Coach Wooden, having lunch, Sue and I and Coach Wooden. And I told him the story of how Keith Erickson played volleyball for me one year when Keith was playing basketball for him. And he told Keith he couldn't play volleyball. <laughs> Well, Keith walked into the gym. It was 1964, and I just formed a new volleyball league. <clears throat> and SC was in it, Santa Monica College, and um, UC Riverside and, and Redlands, and I don't know, whoever we could find that had a, a team. And we're playing Santa Monica College for the championship in the men's gym of the league. Santa Monica had the best coach, Bert DeGroote, and he had, he practiced five days a week from three to whenever he wanted to. I was still struggling to get a couple of nights in the men's gym because mm -hmm. Paulie wasn't built. You know, I started off with one night. I don't know how many nights we're practicing there. So just before the game, Keith shows up with his volleyball uniform and says, can I play coach? And he said, I said, well, you know, Coach Wynn doesn't want you to play. He says, I really want to play. And Santa Monica is better than us because they're better trained. I'd probably practice in one night a week for two hours still. But Keith is an amazing talent. He went to the Olympics in 64 as a volleyball player and played 15 years in the NBA, too. So I says, we had a Daily Bruin reporter. I grabbed the kid and I said, listen. You can't put Keith's name in the in the room tomorrow. You got that? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I says, okay, suit up. We beat him. Keith is amazing. Next day, I have a lunch break. I'm just down the street in Beverly Hills teaching. I go into Coach Wooden's trailer. They're building a, a new facility for athletics. He's not there because he goes down to lunch in the village. I tried to get there before he left. J.D. Morgan comes out and says, he's the athletic director. What are you doing here? Because he knows I'm teaching. That's his excuse for not paying me anything, <laughs> making me a 10% employee at the time, <laughs> or whatever it was. So I said, I'm looking for coach. Why? I said, well, I played Keith. He grabs me, takes me in his office. He says, he's going to kick Keith off the team. You know, Keith might be our captain next year. I says, listen, I'm thinking, you know, you're paying me 400 bucks. I can go coach football, make a thousand. I said, why don't I resign? I didn't know what I wanted to coach yet. I want to be a basketball coach. I already been a football coach. This volleyball gig, I mean, it was, <laughs> I, 
my wife went in the house. You know, I got to earn here. You know, I got to start earning. And so he, I resigned. I wrote it out. The next day, John, I mean, JD calls me at home, says, well, I've reconsidered. I'm tearing this up and I'm giving you a raise. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'll be back then. Okay. I tell this story to Coach Wooden. It's, uh, I don't know, a long time later. And he says, oh, yeah, JD showed me that. I tore it up. He tore it up. He would, And he never talked to Keith about it. He let it slide. Mm. And so he's the reason that I'm still coaching Bob. Mm, that's JD cool. JD wanted to fire me. That's cool. And I would have gone on to something else, I'm sure. Until that speaks then, to his character. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we mainly talk about things like baseball. He loved baseball. Talk about the Dodgers. And he coached a lot of sports back when he was a high school English teacher. You know, he, he I think he didn't coach baseball. It's one of them. I think he coached track and field, and basketball. Did you... Could you speak to the pyramid of success and how that impacted you? Well, see, that didn't really impact me. What okay. impacted me was watching his practices. Mm. If I got in and watched some of his practice and how fast everything happened and how he never stopped and had a meeting and talked to the players. He just let, let him work the whole time. And how he manages to exhaust him in two hours and really get him in shape. That's because he didn't stop them all the time and talk to them. He talked to them while they were playing. And he did it with verbal cues. He'd say, no, you, you make your pass like that. And he'd show them once or twice and talk to them while they're moving. And they, they got it. And that's how I sped up my practices. Mm, that's cool. See, by watching yeah. him. And by the time I got to know him, we just talked about stuff he liked to talk about. Like he loved to watch women's basketball because technically they were better mm. than the men. And uh, a lot about baseball. And uh, I, I played baseball. I, I used to pitch every Sunday in Culver City. I'd play volleyball all day Saturday, and then I'd go out and pitch nine innings every Sunday. We were always the home team, and we'd play the Dodger rookies or whoever they'd send out that week, whoever our manager got, are the old black players who used to be, they'd travel as all black guys. And, and, or whoever showed up, we never knew who we were playing. I'd throw nine every week. Coach, could you talk a little bit about the pyramid of inspired living that I sent you? Um, and if you don't have it in front of you, I could just rattle off some of the, the values there. And if, if any of them just, if you want to speak to any of them, um, you know, there's family, there's clarity. Okay, let's start with health. Health, right. I'm going to add number four to the three things on winning an okay. championship. Number okay, cool. four is cut back on the weight training and the intensity of practices before the elimination games start, before the conference championships start. And your players will actually jump higher and be stronger at that time for you backing off the exercises. 
a lot of coaches train their teams harder at the end. Players have to mend. Their shoulders have to feel good. Those nagging injuries have to feel good. And this is the time to do it. So back off at the end. I didn't even practice the day of the championships for many, many years. And when I did practice, we just do, do a few serves and I made practice optional. I'd rather have them fresh. That's sure. being healthy. Okay, right. I'll add the fifth rule going back to the beginning okay. of the program. All right. Only have one rule. Don't have a bunch of stupid rules where if a player breaks the rule, you have to penalize them. The number one rule. Do you know the number one rule? Remind me. <laughs> Don't do anything to embarrass the university or the team. That's right. That's all you need. That's right. My, two, my, my, whoever I reported to wanted to see my list of rules, so I'd, I'd put them in a drawer and change the date. You know, 20 bogus rule, rules for the administrator because they like to have a lot of rules. But that's the only time the players never saw those rules. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I told them. I so those are the five things. Okay, this is health. Okay, we got health done. Love. Oh, here's the thing. You gotta, you gotta love your family. Mm. You know? And I never showed my players love during the season until I graduated. Then I become friends with my players after they graduate if they want that relationship i was there then so some of my players are my best friends now mm -hmm. i play golf with sinjin every friday denny klein has remained one of my best friends throughout these years and uh <laughs> he's driven he's come and driven me to my last two birthday parties that uh, Greg Harris-Amovich throws me, threw me my 80th and 82nd. 81, we didn't have one because of the virus. Mm. But he knows I might have a little tequila, so he comes out to my place and chauffeurs me to the party. And, and of course, <laughs> is invited, too. <laughs> Gets me back home safe. So that's nice. So I reserved the love for the players later. Because mm -hmm. I don't like all of my players the same. I mean, I kind of, it's hard to say this. It's, it's amazing. I love, I love my players, but I'm not going to show them any of that because I want to be so objective on who I'm choosing. I want the best combinations. I want, my, I only had one goal every year. That was winning the NCAA championship. And hell, we won 19 of them in 36 years with six runner-ups. That's pretty good. And I couldn't get emotionally involved with players. Now, certain players who needed to talk to me, I'd come, they'd come to my office and talk to me and tell me all their problems. And uh, I'm not going to tell you who those players were. And I try to help them in that regard. You know, Sinjin's first job I gave him was uh, teaching volleyball at the beach club. He never played beach volleyball. That's where he learned to play beach volleyball. 
Then he became king of the beach. Mm -hmm. His mother was a widow and had, I think, six kids. It was a substitute teacher, Mary Lou Smith. And then I talked to the athletic director at the time. He was the Bob Fisher. He made her a full-time administrative assistant or secretary. And she got medical and dental for all those kids. And uh, she was great. She was great at what she did. I could walk into a room of donors. And she would tell me who they all were before I talked to them. I didn't know who the hell they were. I mean, some of them I did, but she knew everyone knew them. So that worked out. But anyway, afterwards, like Greg Herzimovich, the last assistant coach I ever hired, we played chess about once a week. We were for a while until COVID come along. And uh, cigars, chess, and tequila. It's a good, good outing. But anyway, <laughs> um, okay, love. There you go, love. Yeah. Oh, gratitude and appreciation. Yeah, I, I spoke about the gratitude appreciation I have for these guys you know some of the guys I I most appreciate my favorite team was the 2016 because none of those guys started right away mm -hmm. those guys some of them didn't start until they were fifth year seniors on that team and 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 to look at how far that team came we took them to Italy and uh 2005 and some of those guys realized they weren't that bad <laughs> playing against professional Italian players. I think we had 10 matches on the road. See with a women's team, you can't do that. You can only have women together for like two or three matches and it's time to come home, I think. But these guys, I don't know. I always knew it was easier coaching men than women. Yeah. I coached one women's team in 74 L.A. Renegades, we won the U.S. Open Championship. But I only coached them at the Nationals. Dr. Kang Pung Lee, Kong Pung Lee, coached them during the season. And he asked me to help him out at the Nationals. He was a dear friend of mine. And uh, so that was my... Of course, I coached girls and boys together. <laughs> second through eighth graders. My entire career. 35 years. So I coach a lot of girls. Yeah. I found them the same as boys. I never could understand my girls coaches when I used to watch them would do things like get on a stand and hit a hundred balls to these girls. Why do <laughs> teach them like the men, you know? Why do they just do slide steps to block? Why don't they cross over and run the block? Of course, human human catching when he coached the women on the national team, he just coached them like using the same techniques. I looked at him, I knew he was using the same techniques. I never talked to him about it, but you could tell. Yeah. Same tactics. He finally got it. I mean, I, he got it from the beginning, but yeah. Big coach, uh, there, there's two more things I want to touch on, but um, this is kind of a big moment for me since you mentioned the 2006 team. You know, I was on that team. And I was a I was a senior that uh, that year. And I want to talk to you about commitment um, for anyone listening 
that, um, you know, might be thinking about, you know, leaving a team or is really frustrated, uh, you know, like I was, I was really frustrated that year. And, you know, I left the team, you know, and this is kind of difficult for me to talk about publicly, but I feel like I'm at a place now where, you know, I made peace with it. I came into your office and apologized um, after the fact, after the, after winning the championship. But, you know, now I'm at a place where I made peace with that. And I really want to help anyone who might be listening or a coach or a parent who has a kid that is just going through a tough time. For me, it was, you know, I had my second knee surgery and I let myself use that as an excuse, you know, uh, to, to be like, hey, you know, I, I can't. I can't do this anymore. But really, you know, looking back, it was Tony Kerr, you know, jumping in into my spot and being better than me, you know, and congratulations to him. He's a great player and, and Shiguri as well. But before that, Schrader and I were like battling and Schrader had the spot, all-time dig leader, UCLA. But I, I, I bring that up because <clears throat> you mentioned the 2016 and it haunted me for a long time. Um, but like I said, now I'm at a place where I want to, I want to help. I want to help someone else who might go through that. I'd like you to speak to commitment, speak on commitment and what that really means, um, you know, as a player and as a coach and as being, being a part of the team. Right. And like, if you're going through a tough time, whatever it may be, it could be a fresh, you know, maybe a better guy's coming in, maybe you got an injury, but I wish I'd stayed committed and I wish I just, you know, stuck with it, you know? So could you just speak to that a little bit? Well, okay. Pers personally, I, I guess I, I can use use myself as an example where I it was costing me money to coach at UCLA mm -hmm. because I only had a budget of $100 my first year. And I spent more than that on entry fees. I spent <laughs> more than that on volleyballs. <laughs> and we didn't have much money. I mean, I was a teacher in Santa Monica, full-time teacher. I was going to school, getting my administration credential. My goals were to be a public school superintendent of schools. And that's what I was doing. I was going to be a PE teacher, a vice principal, principal superintendent. But first I needed the credential. And then I could start moving up. But I wasn't earning anything. And somehow I saw the benefit of continuing when I was with the national team in Mexico City, I found out that the Japanese were on tour. They were going to stop in L.A. And the wheels started turning. Well, if I can get them into Poly, if I can go to J.D. and say, if you don't charge, you can keep the receipts and I can give you 5,000 people. I got this idea. But I still wasn't earning. I went through years. And I, I just decided when it came time that I got a a full ride to Harvard to get a, a doctorate degree. And, and this was um, Dick Bertain offered that to me. He was a personnel director of Santa Monica, graduated from Harvard, said, you can take a leave, get your degree, come back and be an administrator. And you'll be on your way. I had to make a choice. And I just decided, okay, this isn't doing anything for me now, but if I can complete this mission, I can build the sport. I can make it an NCAA sport. I can open it up for others and I can popularize the game. I just decided I was going to do that. And it was a lot of sacrifice for my right. family, right? for myself, my wife. I mean, I was gone a lot. She raised the three kids. I mean, when I was with them, I was with them. 
But that coaching gig in 71, I was on the road for six weeks. The first house, we, we bought a house. I was in Havana, Cuba. I didn't know if we got the house. My wife was pregnant. She moved in. It was all done by the time I caught to Miami and got back and found out what was happening. I had no way to ask. So I, we sacrificed the family. So sometimes if you just carry through on your mission, things aren't going well, it's going to be worth it in the long run. Right. That's, that's all I got to say. And you know some yeah. of those guys that you played with in 2006, Nick Shefty. Yeah. When he came in, he was going through a rapid growth spurt. He had yeah. a hard time walking and chewing gum at the same sure. time. Yeah. And here he was, NCAA finals. He put away the final ball. Shoot set in the middle, 31. Kaboom. He did it. He hung in for five years. Yeah. He was on that second court most of the time. Sure, with me. <laughs> That's right. And Dennis Gonzalez, too, you know. I wanted to kick Dennis out of school. I know. He wouldn't go to class. He's a very bright kid. You know, he's a he's a doctor now. I know, yeah. And I don't know how he could sweet talk the professors <laughs> and the change in the grade. He did that. I don't know how the hell he did it. And I told him, Dennis, I'm kicking you out. And I told my senior associate athletic director, Petrina Long, I said, Petrina, I've had it with Gonzalez. She says, let me talk to him just one more time. Dennis, go see Petrina. She says, let him stay. Yeah. I think we're going to do it this time. He's a good guy. He's, he's well, I know. A, see, yeah. my own experience, when I went to UCLA, PE was so easy for me. I didn't even go to class. The sun was out. I was at the beach trying to learn how to play volleyball. I didn't right. know how to play. I didn't know how to play beach volleyball. I barely. I I never played volleyball until I got to UCLA. And then I, I made the team, learned it. But my professor, Glenn Eggstrom, who was the volleyball coach, I walked by his office one time in the men's gym, where all my classes were. I was barefoot and sandy. He says, come on in here. I, he says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to class. And he says, my God. He says, next time you come by my office and walk into a class, I want to see a halo around your head. I want you, the professors, to think you have the halo effect. I want you to sit in the front row. I want you to go to class when you're supposed to. He says, you're just getting by. I was playing volleyball for him. I only saw him on Wednesday nights for two hours. And at the match, he changed me because he cared enough to give me a few minutes. Yeah. When I was teaching school, I tried to change one kid a year in my class. I'd bring him into my office and have that talk. Somebody who was screwing off. Of course, at UCLA, I did that too. Yeah. And uh, I tried to do it with Dennis, but I wasn't good enough. But Petrina did it. And it was such a a delight to find out that he's a doctor just amazing yeah and you know just to finish my story there i think what you're trying to say is you know stay the course and and finish the mission right yeah that's what you, yeah that's what and, I'm and and anyone listening you know like i said who who's going through a tough time you know just stay with it because you know you don't want to have any regrets and and the whole journey is short you know you got plenty of time for life stuff after sport yeah. you know so 
anyway, that's cool uh, that we could talk about it opening openly like that because that it's a tough a tough uh, experience for me. Um, one more thing, Coach, and I really appreciate your time mm-hmm. here. Um, talk to me about fulfillment. What does fulfillment mean to you? Well, I, I don't know. I I haven't reached it yet, but <laughs> okay. I just. <laughs> Right now, I'm, I'm trying to take care of my family the best I can and, and my friends. I, I have a group of friends that I play golf with. I play with a different group. On, same, same group every Wednesday, same group every Friday, same group every Tuesday, same group every Monday. Yeah, and Thursday, I have a group. I, it's important to me. These are people I like and enjoy being with. And that's how I stay healthy and engaged with people. And I get it done at dawn because I'm not supposed to be out in the sun. We're the dawn patrollers, each group. <laughs> okay. We, a long round for us is three hours and 15 minutes. Okay. We try to be off the tee. I mean, certain groups are faster notes. When I'm playing with Ranger Tom, ex-Lieutenant uh, Colonel, and the Rangers, we're moving fast. Otherwise, he's waiting for you on the green when you're hitting your approach shot. And you don't want to hurt him, so you, you got to keep up with him. But that's how I'm staying healthy. And then my family, of course, you know, we got grandkids and, you know, just checking and make sure everybody's doing okay. And yeah. That's enough for me right now. That's keeping me fulfilled, right? There. That's great. That's great. Coach, this was awesome. Like I said, a full circle moment for me after all those years. And, you know, I just really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, you know, sharing some of your mindset and some of your strategies and all those experiences. This was great. Appreciate you. Well, thank you. Aaron. Good. Yeah. To see you again. Yeah. You too. Don't go anywhere. Okay. I'm just going to end this okay. uh, for anyone listening. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, like, and share. And we'll see you on another episode of within the game. This episode is brought to you by DAF global. If you're looking to start a podcast or you have a podcast and you're looking for editing services, hit up my guys, Oliver and Garrett at DAF Global. They're awesome. They help me with this podcast and they take care of all kinds of different services like editing and audio enhancement. And they're great to work with. They're also offering a 10% discount to all within the game listeners. So hit my guys up at DAF Global on Instagram and also on their website, www.dafglobal.com dot co dot uk